Have you got your mojo working? Do you just want to give it a good kickstart? Either way, you've come to the right station. The Mojo Radio Show will help you get your mojo working at work and at play. I got my mojo working, but it just won't work on you. Hey everybody and welcome to a brand new season on the Mojo Radio Show. A couple of new faces in the house and I've got to say, looking ahead at season six, another cracker. It just keeps getting better better and better on the Mojo Radio Show. In the house, in the voiceover booth, bringing us into the new season. AP, nice to have you back. You've had a little break from us, but you're, uh, you're back in the house. Thanks, Gary. Yeah, I'm back in the house. Had to break in, of course, because uh, you guys have locked the doors, but that's okay. Good to have you here, mate. And driving the big red bus into season six behind the console, our chief engineer, Robbo, uh, 200 odd, odd, if you would say they are odd, 200 odd shows into (laughs) the Mojo Radio show. New season ahead. Yeah, I know. I can't believe six seasons. That's just Seems incredible, but um, I can't believe I put up with you for that long to begin with. <laughs> I can't believe anybody puts up with me for that long. <laughs> what we should know, because this is a podcast and it's not a visual thing, but mm. uh, looking around the studio, you have done a fair bit of work, haven't you? Because there was anyone who was with us at the end of season five will know the last show of the year, we did have some workers beginning to pull things apart. What have you done here, mate? Give us, give us the, the scoop. Oh, look, we just redesigned it to make it a little bit more comfortable comfortable for everybody. The uh, the Tim Tam fridge is no longer a bar fridge. It's a double door open swinger. <laughs> uh, you'll notice the stubby holder on your microphone stand. Very, that, that is very swish. All the important stuff to, that makes it sound better. <laughs> betterer. <laughs> betterer. I love that word, betterer. Yeah. And most importantly, mate, there is actually one new team member to introduce you to. So can you introduce our new member? Well, Lola, would you like to say hello? Hello, boys. How cool is that? How good (laughs) is this? So we should set this up. Yeah. You've heard of Siri, folks. You've heard of uh, Alexa. Yep. Well, this is a studio automated system. This is the only one in the world. And this is a a Digge automated system that we have as part of the Mojo Radio Show. So just to give you a a setup, folks, as to how Lola will fit into our team, Lola, can you play your personal intro song, please? She walked up to me and she asked me to dance. I asked her her name and in a thumb voice she said hello. <laughs> well, so cool. What else would it be? Let's be honest. So cool. Have you checked your email this morning, Mulder? No, why? Because I received something unsettling, and I wondered if you'd gotten it too. The Mojo Mailbag. Well, we will obviously be talking to Lola a lot more through the season. Before we start, I just want to um, read out a note. Um, and this came just out of the blue, just after Christmas. I thought it was a lovely note. And it was from, do you remember Dave Acosta, the front man for the. Las Vegas SWAT team, yes, remember Dave? Absolutely. He was a great interview. 
A great interview and a great guy, but he sent us a note over the break. He said, Gary, I just want to thank you again for having me on the show. You guys are amazing hosts and very engaging. You manage the conversation and flow like true pros. I have shared the show with a lot of people and the response has been off the charts positive. Thank you. Keep up the great work. All the best. D Acosta, episode 205, which was really another great show from season five. But I wrote back to him and said, mate, best email ever. And um, he has agreed to come back on the show later on this this season. So uh, I just love that. And I think it's something that people don't think about with podcasts as in the value that you can get to know people. Now, whether it be hosting a show that we do or, in fact, when you listen to shows – but it's something you don't really get from a lot of other mediums where you can kind of personally interact with and get to know people, which you can do through podcasts and through socials today, which you couldn't do back in the day when mm-hmm. we were in radio, could you? So nope. I, I love the fact we get to know some of these guys. I got a note from Brian Falchuk, episode 181. Remember the do-a-day guy? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Now that was a really popular show and that is a killer show to listen to at the start of a new season, episode 181, Brian Falchuk. Well, he's writing a new book. He just rang to give us an update on how he's going and he introduced us to a guest who will be coming up in the show in a couple of months' time. So I um, I just love hearing from all these past guests and I feel like we, uh, we're making new mates as we go along. Yeah. And you're right, you know, it's something, it is something about podcasting that's completely different to radio. It's like when we, when we worked in radio, you'd have a guest walk into the studio, they'd do the interview and they'd walk out and that'd be it. You'd never see them again. But it's amazing how many guests uh, that we do keep in touch with, isn't it? I mean, we've even been out for coffee with some. <laughs> <laughs> We have. All right. Well, we should uh, get into our first guest of the season. Lola, play ID. Playing that now. We interrupt this program to bring you a special bulletin. <laughs> <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show. Right. Ladies and gentlemen. Now. Now, are you going to become lazy? Are you, gonna, are you not going to do anything? Are you going <laughs> to sit back in your, your armchair there and just get Lola to do all the work? Is that the deal? Oh, I told you she was customised. You ain't seen nothing yet, mate. <laughs> all right. So, you know how... I get to facilitate a lot of sessions with businesses or with teams or you work with the footy team, you know, with the boys in the footy team. And what is interesting about this interview to start us off is everybody wants to get along. Now, whether it be at home or in the workplace, the whole idea of building cultures and having teams is for everyone to get along because really we don't want to hurt people's feelings or we don't want to offend them. Therefore, it's no surprise that many psychology experts have proven that we don't tend to go against authority because we want to get along and we tend to go with the majority view. And I read a book called No by Professor Charlene Nemeth and the book basically is about the power of no or disagreement in a world that just wants to get along. Now, I've got to say, when I read this book, it spoke to me (laughs) because for years I've always been the one who gets in trouble for going, well, I don't buy into the majority. I don't buy into that. Why Why are we not? And Professor Charlene Nemeth is a world-leading expert on dissent. Who would have thought? And 
Descent of what? Descent of flowers? Descent of beer? Oh, the flowers. (laughs) And Charlene's been doing it for 35 years on basically being a rebel or someone who has an element of dissension in terms of how they approach their personal life or their work life and how by being this rebel and fostering that, fostering more disagreement, we can dramatically improve not only decision-making, the production of good ideas like in brainstorming, which is something I really want to talk to Professor Nemeth about. So the book was called No, The Power of Disagreement in a World that Just Wants to Get Along. I loved it. So I wrote to Charlene Nemeth, and I have to say up front that Charlene has been inundated with media attention for the last year. And kind of said, Gary, I'm a bit tired, so I'm not doing any media. However, she loves Australia and she likes the show. And so we managed to get into Charlene's diary or calendar for a quick interview today. Charlene is the professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of California, has got a string of different titles and boards and work that she does around the world. But she specialises in the areas of persuasion, team decision-making, scientific creativity, corporate cultures, innovation, and where does dissent and being a rebel fit into all this? So I've got to say we're very proud and delighted that Professor Charlene Nemeth could be with us today. Charlene, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Thank you. I read your book a little while ago, wrote to you, and you've kindly offered to be here on the show with us. I've got to say... It is probably one of the most important books I've read in so long in that I felt like you were talking to me. However, when I wrote to you, you said that the book I have, which is called No, The Power of Disagreement in a World That Just Wants to Get Along, has a different title elsewhere. Why why is that? Well, I I originally signed with the basic books and the, uh, the title was In Defense of Troublemakers, colon, uh, the power of uh, dissent in life and business. And then uh, uh, they actually sold the UK rights to a publisher in the UK. And I didn't have anything to do with that. Uh, But the first thing they did was to write back and ask if they could change the title. They weren't sure that the, um, that the title of, that had troublemakers in the, you know, in, in, in the main title uh, would resonate well in the UK. And I thought, well, you know, they know that market better than I. I don't think I realized what kind of a complexity it would create, but I basically said, okay. So they they decided on, uh, which is a nice title, uh, the no, you know, the power of disagreement, et cetera. But um, it caused some confusion because it really is the same book with a different title, but it's primarily because that particular market, uh, the UK, which apparently includes their notion of their market, which I think includes Australia and India, has uh, posed a little bit of a difficulty because there's been a lot of reviews and wide marketing, uh, certainly in the States on the book, but under the title of In Defense of Troublemakers. You've said this book was deeply personal for you. Why Why was that? Um, it's probably a longer story than I can uh, say on a uh, in a quick uh, podcast, I, it's something that I've thought about actually for most of my professional life. And um, I think uh, 
you know, I'd have to really reflect on on exactly why all the elements of it being personal. But I know even when I was an undergraduate, which is many, many years ago, I was a math major. And uh, but we had to take a lot of liberal arts classes. And one of them was in social psychology. And I can still remember that lecture. This is back in the 60s. Um, and that lecture was on uh, uh, essentially uh, brainwashing. It had to do with uh, um, some of the uh, servicemen who came back from the uh, Korean War and um, were interviewed. And it was just, the stories were just so powerful in terms of the mechanisms by which uh, people could literally kind of just decide they didn't want to live anymore. They would just lie in their bed. That kind of thing. And the power that people had over one another, the influence, uh, the mechanisms, how much we can be uh, sources of enormous kind of joy and support and how we can be really sources of evil and coercion in a way, I think came home. And as I was thinking of graduate school, while the money certainly would have been in continuing in math, in applied math in particular, because that was the kind of early days of the computer world, which would have been a whole different uh, trajectory for me is that I realized is that I was really interested in those kinds of issues. And so I decided to do graduate work in uh, psychology. But I knew if I went in psychology, it would be in social psychology. I wasn't really interested in the other areas of psychology that much. And so I sort of, you know, took on its own course. And I think I was sort of, a, you know, young enough and idealistic enough that, uh, you know, there's a little bit of I'm going to kind of make the world better, you know, by virtue of my work. And I think that was really the start of it, of the interest in the influence that people have over one another. And then it took on its own form, uh, which is in some ways another story, which you know I can go into if you want, but um, where the emphasis was really on the minority viewpoint, the uh, uh, the center, the uh, the odd man out, because that's not the way the the field saw influence. And uh, it was really due to the uh, impact of a major mentor in my life to whom uh, actually the book is dedicated to three mentors, one of whom was Serge Moscovici in Paris as a Romanian Jew, came out during the war, kind of knew hard labor as a boy. Um, you know, they, they, and they were Jewish and they clearly, you know, they were, a lot of those issues were very real. And they were, uh, they gave meaning back to the field, which, uh, frankly, as I was going to graduate school, I was finding to be kind of removed from the important issues that drew me to it in the first place. So that took on its own course in terms of the title, I mean, the uh, subject matter of the book. Mark Twain once said, whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. Can you, with your, the work you've done, Tell me, what's, what's the danger of the majority? What's the danger of consensus? Uh, a lot. <laughs> uh, by the way, I, I, like that, I, I like that quote, by the way. I mean, I'm a big Mark Twain fan, but I was born and raised in Missouri, so maybe that's part of it. But it's one of my favorites. Uh, but, you know, I think the, the, the concern about majorities, uh, which I think most people recognize, is their power to get you to believe things and to do things that you wouldn't do otherwise. And there are literally uh, half century of studies on the power of um, very few people, particularly if they go unchallenged. Uh, 
And so a lot of that early work was done in the 1950s by Solomon Ash, et cetera, which basically showed that even when you have very clear tasks, like you're just uh, saying which of three lines is equal to a standard line, you make no mistakes at all. I mean, it's, it's a really simple task. And yet, if as few as three people in your group, let's just say you're in a group of four and three people all agree that a different line is equal, is that they were finding at about 35% of the time, people would agree with that erroneous majority, even when it flew in the face of the evidence right in front of their face, and and they were errors that they would not make if alone. Now, that study caused a lot of attention, and there's literally hundreds of studies since then using all kinds of different tasks, different kinds of people. It's been done in a dozen cultures, et cetera, et cetera. And you find that there's just enormous power in the um, in a, ma- a majority when it goes unchallenged, as I say, in particular. And, you know, as further evidence, for example, if you look at more real life here uh, with our jury system, for example, is that you'll find nearly 90% of verdicts are the position held by a majority on the first ballot. Again, it gives you another window in terms of the power of the majority. It's the business model for a lot of companies because they basically have you believe everybody's doing it, so you should be doing it. And it's very effective. That's one element. The part that my own work took um, which I personally think is even more important, but I would, of course, since I spent you know a lot of decades on it. And that's that majorities don't just kind of get you to buy things that aren't true. Uh, they actually change the way you think about an issue. And the, the nutshell of, uh, of my research is that um, those majorities actually narrow the range of considerations. They narrow the way you think. So you find that people start to uh, only look at information that justifies that majority position. They basically want to convince themselves that the majority is in fact correct and that they can join it then and then they don't have to be the odd man out or odd woman out. And uh, in other ways, if you if they use, if the majority uses a particular strategy and a problem, um, you tend to use that strategy to the exclusion of things you otherwise would use. And anyway, I could go on and on, but the but what what it in a lot of different studies, what you find is that I use the term convergent thinking, but when you're faced with the majority, you start to think in very narrow ways from their perspective. And that's one reason why cults, for example, use uh, consensus, use not only majority opinion, but they don't brook any dissent at all. And it's a very effective mechanism for keeping people in line because they effectively self-brainwash. So you don't have to even be have all the power and coercion and monitoring. Uh, they kind of convince themselves. And that's more of an applied aspect of what the basic studies are, but it essentially narrows, narrows thinking. And that's not what you want if you're decision-making. Shalyn, if we have somebody listening to the show who also buys into Mark Twain that whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. So they've heard you speak. They like that quote. They're sitting there now and pausing and reflecting on a situation where they don't agree with the majority. They don't agree with consensus in their organisation, in their community group, in their footy team, wherever it may be. So then for them to be the fish that swims in the opposite direction, they're going to have to cause, one would think, either conflict or put themselves in a position where it could cause conflict. Do we carry false beliefs around conflict? Uh, I think we we do. Um, 
Well, we have false beliefs, but I think the ones that you're mentioning are not false. They're true. Namely, if you do speak up and you have the dissenting view, uh, I can, it's not great news, but it's the truth, is that I can guarantee you that um, you will be uh, the object of all of all the communication which attempts to change your mind. It tells you you don't know what you're doing. How can you be right when you're one, when they all agree on something else? And it usually is followed by some kind of dislike and derision. And so the, the concern about risks that's going through the individual's mind that you're commenting on are very real. Um, I think where the false belief is, is the notion that that's appropriate to contain that dissenting viewpoint. Uh, I think what's a false belief is that truth lies in numbers. Because, in fact, it, it could. I mean, my, you know, majority opinion can be correct, but it isn't necessarily. And I think the problem is, is that we walk around with a, a certain assumption. So we think that if everybody agrees, it must be true. So therefore, I, I've got to be wrong. So a lot of people, when they're in a position of, um, of being the dissenter, they, they aren't very sure. I mean, they start to really think that uh, maybe I'm missing something. How can they all see one thing and I see something else? And that makes a lot of sense. Plus, they've got a lot of motivation not to speak up because they don't want that derision. And uh, um, so those are very real. I think, though, that where that's a problem is that those voices are needed. And it's the other side of the coin of the book. I mean, the first part we talked about is why you fear consensus, but the second part is why you value dissent. Because when they do speak up, the beauty, and I love this, this is the beauty of all the studies, is it doesn't even matter if they're right or wrong. It doesn't matter whether they've got some truth to give you. What matters is that they challenge the consensus. And when they do that, what happens is, is that the mind opens so that people now are searching for information on all sides of the issues. If they're looking at strategies and problem solving, they use multiple strategies. Namely, all the things that you really want for good decision making and for you know performance and all of that, they actually are aided by dissent, even, even one that's incorrect. And I think people don't fully appreciate that, or at least it's, it's, that's, um, that's something that is not obvious. That's why you have to do the studies. Uh, in order to demonstrate it over and over again. But I think that there's value in that conflict and, it, and we go to great lengths to suppress it all the time. What you just said I, it really resonated with me in the book, Shalom. One of the lines that I loved, you said, the value of dissent does not lie in its correctness. And I think you've just explained that for me. Then if I take the the next part that I'm curious about is that people who are in the majority or are in consensus will then argue with dissenters and even get quite upset with them because they start to question their motives. And you talk about authentic dissension, which is really important. How do we qualify and set ourselves up for authentic dissension when we know that other people will be upset when we bring a, a contrary point of view forward? Um, well, I think your authenticity isn't, isn't really related to how they react to you. It, the authenticity really has to do with whether or not you're speaking a truth as you best see it and you're speaking with conviction. And I think that um, 
when people do that, now obviously you can be played. You know, I mean, people can pretend all kinds of things. But by and large, the, the dissenter doesn't continue unless they really believe it. Uh, and, and the reason is, is that they, they're not stupid. They know the risks involved and they know the derision that's coming their way. So it takes a certain amount of courage to stand up and to continue arguing the position you believe rather than caving right away. And um, so I, I think that, I mean, the authenticity has to do with your own belief and conviction. But I think what you see it play out in groups is that when it's maintained over time and it's consistent, and it's in the face of derision is that it augments the notion that it is authentically held. You've talked about someone who is, let's call it a dissenter or a troublemaker, so to speak. That's a terminology. There is someone who feels strongly about it, believes in it, knows that it could cause division, but is truly authentic in their own approach to it. An authentic dissenter, are they authentic in their own mind for their own life, their own way of doing things, as well as dissenting against the majority and consensus? Are they as hard on themselves as they are in speaking up the truth in front of others? Uh, that's a good question. Um, because the, the one side of it is that you, you won't have the stimulating quality or even the possibility of winning unless you do stand up and you are persistent and consistent. Um, but that also means that to some extent you also have to listen to the opposing viewpoints yourself so that um, it, it, does, it doesn't mean it's, I don't know quite how to phrase this, but standing up for what you believe doesn't mean you close your mind to other alternatives or to other people's viewpoints. Mm -hmm. It just means you stand up for what you believe. It means you don't sit there in silence and you don't make excuses and you don't play games. Uh, but it doesn't mean that you rigidly, uh, you know, you can you can believe it, but you still listen because at one level, uh, we all have feet of clay and we all uh, uh, have much to learn. And none of our, our views may be the best we can do given how as much as we've thought about it. But at some level, you realize it's not uh, it's not complete. That there are other. Uh, positions that may be as valid or there may be nuances to your own that have to be reconsidered. So I, I think that it, uh, I mean, it's interesting you ask that because it's the same question actually that uh, uh, another podcast called Econ Talk here in the States asked uh, just a few weeks ago and got me thinking about that. It's actually, very, it's a very thoughtful question. You've said that, this is, this is staggering, 70% of people admit they won't speak up at work for fear of being branded as a troublemaker. And that will be happening on any given day and any given hour somewhere in the world. There will be someone who has a contrarian perspective that they truly believe in but won't speak up for fear of causing trouble or being branded. Does this need... A, this is, is this a leadership issue in terms of, for example, I heard the guy who was the director of a movie called Wall-E and they won an Academy Award for animation. And when he went to the podium at the Oscars to receive the Oscar, he said, the first person I'd like to thank is Steve Jobs for creating an animated safe house. And I've never forgotten that. And hearing you talk about this, 
I'm just wondering how much responsibility is on the leader of an organisation that has these people who aren't speaking up. How is it, it must be a key responsibility for leaders to create a safe house where when you do speak up, it's okay. You're exactly right. I mean, the, the message, in fact, is pitched at the leaders. Um, it, it, it's, it's too much to ask an individual uh, to bear the brunt of the repercussions to just, uh, you know, I mean, martyrs do it, obviously, and they get killed. But, um, you know, I, I mean, but, you know, and that does take courage. And sometimes, you know, many people just have the guts or the belief or the conviction that they want to speak up, period. But, you know, that's a, but they still have to weigh a lot of the consequences. I think it, uh, the the real pitch, uh, in fact, a, a talk I have to give coming up shortly is to CEOs. And I, the message is really aimed at them. So that notion of the safe house, uh, I think, is uh, is a very important one. Um, and it's because if they actually buy into the notion that there is value in dissent, you know, uh, if only for the kind of thinking that it stimulates, and they change their cultures to do that, uh, that to me would be like the thing I would most hope for. This is probably a personal question for me. If somebody branded me a dissenter, I think I'd be pretty good. I'd be good, good myself. I think I'd be okay with that. If somebody said and branded me for dissension, I'm not sure I'd feel the same way. In your mind, is there a difference between dissension and being a dissentor? Well, not really. I mean, in the sense that I think of a dissenter as simply the person who's dissenting. And it's sort of like that that plain to me. Uh, I think if it means that you that you dissent in and out of season, if 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 you're suggesting that the brand of being a dissenter means that you're you're always on the other side, then there's a predictability to what you do and, and it really suggests motives other than uh, an authentic belief in a different position. It's more like, you know, a, a role or a, a shtick, you know, or a you know, something that you, you, you take on. Um, and, and then all the kind of things that people like to attribute to dissenters, like that they really just want attention or, you know, things of that sort. Uh, in fact, in the book, I, I spent a little time on that with regard to the Edward Snowden case, because, um, uh, you, you know, the, the phrasing of how people view individuals, they, you know, they either have a personality disorder or they want attention or, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, but those are quite commonplace uh, to have that kind of an attribution. Uh, and it, it particularly, I think, would would uh, kind of almost qualify if somebody was just a predictable in and out of season, they take an opposing view. That, that's different. I think that they really disagree on this particular issue. I think you lose a little bit of your power if you are, are too predictable in terms of uh, you know, how you're going to behave or when you're going to dissent. I, I, I think that could come to bite you. There was a line I heard you mention uh, in an interview and you said the danger with the majority is that they fail to see the bend in the road. And it just made me think about sporting teams that were going really well that have now, they're broken. Certainly in our country, some of our greatest institutions right now are broken. And we're seeing it in different parts of the world. I'm wondering whether this 
topic of yours because you've been now doing it for a number of decades. Do you think it's becoming even more prevalent now, Charlene, where we aren't seeing the bends in the road or the majority is getting greater power and the dissenter is not having the opportunity and or the courage to speak up? Is it becoming greater with the way, the pace of life and the way we're doing business? Boy, that's probably a bigger question than than I can answer. I think also, <laughs> I, I suspect I'm a lot older than you are. And so <laughs> I don't I, know. I, I've seen, um, you know, I've seen changes in terms of uh, the presence of dissent or the way it's treated over the decades. And, uh, you know, and there are different pockets. I think many of the baby boomers, of course, remember often with fondness the late 60s in the States when dissent was uh, alive and well. But uh, there, I, I remember my first job was at the University of Chicago, and uh, it was, I went there at, at the time of the Democratic National Convention in 1968, and it was a, a bloodbath, literally. I mean, that whole first year of teaching, uh, there was enormous violence on the streets um, and protests and fighting, and, and dissent was really viewed as essentially uh, uh, kind of inspired by communists, which they usually kind of thought professors were instigators of sorts, you know. And then as the movement, the anti-Vietnam War uh, movement grew, uh, then there were really changing attitudes about dissent and its role. But uh, it was really vilified in the early parts of it, like most movements, because when the idea is new, before it kind of starts to catch on as a movement can be uh, really fierce, uh, and, and it certainly was here. I'm not. I'm not enough of a historian, probably, to uh, to really a very accurate answer in terms of whether uh, times have changed. And also, you know, I begin to realize is that how dated I am with regard to social media, for example, which uh, my kids, even my grandson, looks at me with rolled eyes, you know, when I'm fussing with the mobile phone. But but I do get concerned a bit about the ease with which um, social media kind of has, uh, you, you talk to the like-minded and there's really often a lack of opportunity of any kind of a, a serious dialogue or even exposure uh, to differing viewpoints. And, and, you know, and also there's no interaction. I think that's the other thing that concerns me. It's really just uh, you know, people making statements or giving opinions. And I think the spirit of what I'm after in the book is that it's, it's really dialogue with someone who differs from you. It's the opportunity to really weigh in on what is it that you really believe. And even as you fight with someone else, you learn about what it is you do believe or you start to reconsider things. And I don't think that is easily done, uh, at least in terms of my experience, on, uh, uh, on much of the social media. In fact, I, I, I've almost stopped looking at it now. You know, I look at the professional ones, but not, not much of the social ones. So I probably have a, I'm a little bit out of it. Uh, but uh, what I do see uh, is that it, uh, it trivializes many issues. And I don't, I don't think it's enlightening in particular, but partly because I don't think there's a serious listening or a dialogue. And you don't even know really 
uh, where the where the thoughts are coming from. You don't have any other way to assess other things about the authenticity of their beliefs or the are the real arguments on which it's based. But that's really a, just an impression of mine. No, I think it's gold, Shell, and I I think that people aren't. I, I agree with you. I don't think people are open to differing points of view. But what you've made me think of is that that in fact is a leader to curiosity. It's a leader to learning, broadening our horizons. Uh, working the fringes of what we know into the possibilities. So I, I actually think it's gold. I, and I'm, I'm, I'm very conscious of your time. Just something you said, it's a final question to ask you. Um, you mentioned the word convergent thinking before. Going back many decades, I remember doing uh, a session with a guy called Sid Parnes. Now, Sid Parnes and Alex Osborne invented brainstorming back in the 60s when they were at NASA. And there would be a brainstorm happening at this moment in a thousand boardrooms all over the world. And the proper brainstorming model is to get very clear on what it is that we are talking about, to do divergent thinking, which is gathering as many ideas as possible. So brainstorming is about building big lists, then converging down to the ideas we like the best before we start to judge them. And then we go through, well, by what, by which criteria we judge an idea and so on. What I've heard you talk about, though, is that in brainstorming or creative sessions, the dissension actually can be a positive thing through the session as opposed to living it to the end. Because Alex and Sid in Applied Imagination, the book that outlined the original idea for brainstorming, said you hold, you defer judgment. So do you do your ideas, then you judge. Do you, how do you see that? Where, where, which camp do you sit in? Is it one where you put a foot in both camps? How do you see the creative process? Where does dissension sit? How far into the process? That's a, another really good question. Um, um, I don't, actually, I, I don't want to dismiss that notion of um, listening to a lot, a lot of ideas and deferring judgment. Um, and having them on the table for consideration. Uh, in the book, uh, I don't know if, if you remember it, but there's um, one study that we did on, on brainstorming, and we did it both in the, in the U.S. and in France. And I had colleagues there, and I basically gave them all the materials, and they, they did a straight translation. But what we were really reacting to in that study um, is the notion that Osborne not only said to defer judgment, he had specific rules uh, that he thought encouraged uh, idea generation. And so they were things like, um, you know, aim for quality. Uh, I mean, sorry, aim for quantity, not quality. Quantity, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. Or, or build on others' ideas. So they, they were trying Piggyback to- and combine ideas and, yep. Yeah. Right, because they wanted to kind of buck what they thought people tended to do, that they wanted to basically tell them, don't do that. Because sometimes they won't build on somebody else's idea because they think, well, he already basically said that. So they don't see the value of an add-on. But one of them that I paid a lot of attention to, you can imagine, given the uh, emphasis on the positivity of, of dissent, is that they had a rule of do not criticize And it's related to deferred judgment, but it really basically says to them, don't criticize anybody else's ideas because it'll shut them down. And it has kind of an intuitive sense. And that's always been the golden rule for most people who do brainstorming as as a a mechanism. 
And even in the field, you you, you get a lot of, uh, I mean, that's the sacrosanct one, which I never, just never believed. And I just felt that when you're told not to criticize, you're, told, you're basically told what you can't think about. My, my feeling about creativity is that the whole idea about it is to really allow you to think of anything that comes to mind. Namely, you don't want to start monitoring how you think if you want to be creative. And it just seemed to me that somebody telling me, you know, don't, don't criticize them. And so somebody says something I think is ridiculous. You're basically saying I, I should just keep quiet and I, I shouldn't mention it or whatever. And that just seems to, number one, get in the way of any kind of creative thought, but it also just seemed to be inhibiting. And so since I didn't believe it and we did a study on it, what we did, we essentially compared um, the rules of brainstorming where you use the... The, the, in both cases, the three that, you know, I wasn't paying attention to that much, you know, the quantity and the build on others' ideas and that. But, but all we varied was this do not criticize. And we, we basically framed it as though, you know, research has shown basic, it's better if you don't criticize in one case, and the other is that it shows basically that it's better if you do criticize. So we not only gave them permission, but encouragement to criticize each other's ideas. And um, I don't think, you know, in that study, I mean, uh, we didn't look at every single thing that they said, which would have been prohibitive, particularly given what we're doing in two countries. But what we really found was that most people would argue and hypothesize that our encouragement of criticism would really dampen the generation of ideas. And it would be, you know, like the worst possible condition. And the fact is, it was the best, is that it was even somewhat higher than the traditional rule of do not criticize, which really kind of surprised people. And I think, again, it fits into the narrative that I have really throughout the book, is that we're, we're always, you know, kind of uh, giving ourselves or other people are giving us rules for how we should think. And uh, to some extent, that's embedded in that notion of being a team player or even being part of the majority or that you don't want to buck consensus, is that they all kind of get in the way of independent or creative thinking, in my judgment. And uh, so you can see that even when it comes to the application to something like brainstorming is that that same theme is there. The data bear it out. Namely, that um, we don't need to be afraid of, um, of disagreement. You don't have to be, you know, nasty and, you know, rude or derisive or, you know, all, all the other things that we see in discourse today uh, to just honestly disagree. But what happens is, is that we almost are afraid to do that. And I think that, that we lose something uh, when it comes to the quality of the decisions we make and, and the creativity, I don't think we engage in the kind of critical thinking that's needed uh, to do those things well. Gee, you know, this, there's a lot more that I'd, well, I'd love to continue this conversation with you, Charlene, because there's a lot more that I'd like to dig in. I think this is such a valuable conversation for us as individuals, but also leaders in organisations. I think this is something that organisations really need to think about because they're big on innovation and the new term is disruption. But unless these conversations are had, true disruption will never really happen in organisations unless it's left to a select few, whereas there are 
voices and opinions throughout the organisation at every level that have got ideas that aren't speaking up. That um, I think it's such a valuable topic to um, to share with everybody. So, um, but I'm very conscious of your time. Uh, thank you. Where, where where do people find out more about you, Charlotte? Where do you send people to? Well, to some extent, I mean, the, the the book. The reason it is personal, which is where we started, is that it really is an accumulation of. Um, things I've been thinking about and studies that I've done over decades, but without getting into the minutia of all the academic articles. And it's aimed at trying to find stories and examples where you can put a face on the phenomenon. So it isn't just some, you know, dry academic treatise. So that you can learn a lot. And the, actually the introduction to my book kind of uh, talks a lot about, you know, when you're basically saying the people that matter, that influence the way you think. It gives a real window, uh, and it's a very personal account, uh, in terms of uh, the power of some of the people that had influence over these ideas all three of whom, by the way, are passed away now, which I'm, I'm, you know, makes me very sad. But uh, and I guess the other is that uh, there's a website, charlannemeth.com, so the weird name, C-H-A-R-L-A-N-N-E-M-E-T-H.com, has a lot of stuff on it. Um, and, and then even um, uh, the university has also a, a bit of a website. But usually, you know, if you, if you search on Google, whatever, under the name, those things pop up. And if you're interested in looking further or, or delving into some of the, the real academic articles, if you want to you know, get into the weeds of it, uh, those are on the CV, which is on, on all those websites as well. Gary, you know the biggest problem with the last 30 minutes we've spent? Uh, what? Well, I think there's going to be a lot of dissension in the studio in, in season six somehow. <laughs> no, we're doing it this way. <laughs> I, I, yeah. Well, no, it's it's funny, Charlotte. Robbo's right. I mean, it's, ever since we we built this show, we have never gone with the majority. We've never gone with consensus. We've always said to ourselves, we're going to build a show that we would love to listen to the way that we would love to listen to it. So it's interesting that we have gone down this track. I've got to say, and I haven't given the book to Robbo, but it is, there's nothing in this for us except the fact that this is a message people need to hear. It's a terrific book. There's loads of great examples in there. It's very well written, very well researched. I think it's terribly valuable. And if you have a moment in season six, we'd love to get you back because I'd like to talk about children and the influence we have on children and having them understand what it's like to be a dissentor and how powerful it is and how to go about doing it. So I'd be delighted, by the way, and I should also tell you that one of the happiest sabbaticals I ever had was in Kirribilli, which is, you know, right there at uh, Sydney oh. Harbour, Sydney. And I became an enormous fan of uh, Australia and the Australians. I really did. And uh, I stayed I stayed well because, uh, courtesy of a friend who's a Kiwi who happens to be rich, which is nice because they let me. Well, if you live in Kirribilli, <laughs> he's doing all right. Yep, absolutely. That's uh, Actually, that's, that's a bit of a dichotomy, saying New Zealand and rich in the same, in the same sentence, New Zealand and rich. It doesn't really resonate. Got to say rich. <laughs> Rocks, oh, rocks. no, he, he, believe me, he's extremely successful. And this, this was one of those uh, apartments that overlooked Sydney Harbour. And, oh. and so, I mean, it was to die for. But, of course, you know, reality sets in. And you keep thinking, like, oh, I'd love to live there, except I couldn't live that way. I'd be really <laughs> in the back, back alley someplace, you know. But, it, but I've always kept a very warm spot uh, 
uh, for Australia. And I'd be happy to, uh, to, you know, do this again with you in another season. I've spent a bit of time in Kirribilli. I've never actually lived there, but I've, I've slept in the park under the Harbour Bridge a few times. <laughs> <laughs> well, when the, when the weather's good, you know, yeah. and the, the weather's flowing, that's, it's not all bad. Absolutely. <laughs> it's not a bad view to wake up to, but it's the only way I'll ever see it. Trust me. <laughs> Shalyn, I know there will be... People listening to this show who are the troublemakers, they are the square peg in a round hole. They are the people who either do or would love to be the dissenter, who'd love to speak up. We, we have a thing which we don't often ask people for, but we have a number of sayings that we have up on the studio wall, which we just have as great lines that have come from some of our favourite guests. So this one line is put up on the wall. When I was writing down and doing the research on this show, I thought, you know, it'd be interesting for Charlin to give me a saying or a one-liner that sums up the thinking, the attitude, the feeling of being a troublemaker and or a dissenter that we could take away as the one-liner to keep conscious in our mind when that moment comes where we want to or should speak up. Do you have a one-liner? I'm sure I could come up with one if I thought about it. I, it's just that when I think of quotes that I've used uh, at different times, I've been looking at it actually recently, and I, I somehow, you know, the some of the lines I used to use, I'm not sure is quite as pithy as I thought. I used to always use, though, the... Um, the line from Senator William Fulbright, which is kind of very simple, it just says we should learn to welcome and not fear the voices of dissent. And uh, there are many variations on it, on how, um, you know, partly, you know, you want to think, otherwise, you know, it, uh, things become unthinkable, essentially. You get a lot from uh, John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, which I often, I, they don't come immediately to mind that I can quote them, but I can look them up. If you want, I'll send you a couple of one-liners. Uh, be happy to do that. That'd be awesome. And Gary, you know the other one that is on the studio wall, wall that does still work here particularly well is hold my beer and watch this. <laughs> still works. <laughs> Bravo. Shalyn's a, a professor. So Charlotte thought we were actually doing pretty good. You're talking about sleeping under a bridge with a view, living in a park with a view of the bridge yeah. and hold my beer and watch Look, this. Look, it's the end of season five. It's time to go. We're, we've, now, we've now done we've done the dash. There's just <laughs> so much more stuff that we never got to, but I'm very conscious of your time. It's real privilege that you were saying no to everything, but you said yes to a couple of guys that sleep under a bridge, eat too much, drink too much beer, <laughs> drink too much beer. So thank you. It, no, I, it, is a, it was a pleasure, literally. I was happy to do it. The Mojo Radio Show. Go ahead. Make my day. Does everybody love a little bit of the Clint? Who doesn't love a bit of the Clint? Let's be honest. Come on. <laughs> you surely are not off the planet Earth if you don't like Clint. Mate, have a listen to this story. So it would be remiss of me not to start the new season with a little bit of country. <laughs> well, we could probably do without it, but I'll let you have it. Yeah, go. So this is a story about country music singer and a bit of a legend. He's a current country music outlaw in America called Toby Keith. Toby Keith was invited to a party with Clint Eastwood. The next day they decided to play golf together. I found this interview 
And this is a country music station in America interviewing Toby Keith about playing golf with the Clint. He said, my birthday's Monday. I turn 88. And I said, what are you going to do to celebrate it? And he said, I'm going to go shoot a movie. And I said, wow. Jeez. And like, not just direct it. You're, you're going to be in the movie? He said, yep. So he's back. Yeah. I said, what's it about? He said, it's about an old man, 80-something years old, running um, drugs for the cartel. And he, he's the mule. Yeah. And I said, what keeps you going? And he said, I just get up every day and don't let the old man in. And I was like, whoa. That's the old, like, songwriter brain yep. starts clicking. And so I thought, that's a great idea. But it's funny because you meet guys, particularly in rural areas anywhere in the world, and country guys just get it done. There's no age, there's no retirement, there's no nothing. If a job needs to get done, they just jump on the tractor or jump out of the ute and fix it. And it just seems that in a lot of areas of the world, that attitude is not qualified the same way Clint said it about, I just get up every morning and don't let the old man in. Mm. But there are a lot of people who get to a certain age who believe, oh, I'm too old for that now. Oh, I could never do that. Oh, no, my days have passed. Oh, no. And they let the old man in. And I thought that song, it's a beautiful, actually just play a little bit of the song. Just, just play a bit of it. Hey, Lola, play Toby Keith, Don't Let the Old Man In. As long as it rocks. Don't let the old man in. I won't live it some more. Can't leave it up to him. He's knocking on my door. You're loving Lola, aren't you? I think she's getting a bit sassy already. <laughs> but isn't it funny, though, because... If we tie this together, we talk Clint Eastwood, but Australian actors like Russell Crowe, Hugh Jackman, Chris Hemsworth, Tony Collette. Yeah, yeah. Kylie. Kylie. Um, <laughs> and yet Lola has made it on the international stage Already? along with, yeah, along with Alexa and Siri, and now we have Lola, and she's got more sass. That's right. <laughs> and she buys me beer. <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show. So at the head of the show, as we say in the business, we talked about mates that we have met through the show, have been guests we've kept in touch with who are doing wonderful work. We've become, you know, good buddies with them. And I got a call during the week from, do you remember Toph Evans? Yeah. Yeah, that was a long way back. Toph was a fair way back in season five, but I've got to say that as a show, there was a lot of great feedback about this young guy who was doing incredible endurance events to help him through his own fight with the black dog with depression and anxiety. And we, I hadn't heard from Toe for ages and uh, he wrote a note to me saying, G'day, guys, I'm working on some new stuff. You know, just want it rain to say hello. And I thought, well, let's get him back on the line. So, uh, Toph, mate, welcome back. Good to hear from you guys. Yeah, you too, man. It's been a while. It has. It's been a few months, maybe six months, actually. It has been a while. It has been six months. So your your show was a real hit with our audience, and then we've kept in touch. You sent me this note, and I just I just finishing up the show at the start of season six. I thought this was really interesting, Turf, and I wanted your perspective on. There's a couple of things I want to ask you about. Now, the note you sent me said there are 56 million millennials. That's people 21 to 36 years old, which is out of our demo. But anyway, and. They're working or looking for work. The the issue you said right now is the World Health Organization is finding that stress and mental health struggles are costing the economy a trillion dollars in lost productivity. 
which equates to like three days per worker each year lost through workplace stress. As a young guy in in and around the workplace, what with this note you sent me, what are you seeing? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. Um, I got really curious looking into that because that, that was a study done from World Health Organization, and the three point two days is just Australia alone. But if if you were to break up that that trillion dollar value, I looked into is is kind of like the market or the market's worth. But over each year, like Australia had spent, I think ten point eleven billion just in last year alone. Um, the state spent about $42 billion and it, yeah, it, it kind of, kind of puts a tear to my eye. Like so many people are actually struggling, especially in the workplace. It might be from toxic environments or it could be from something related, not even work related. And it's, they kind of have to go home for it or whatever the situation is. But it's just, just saying that mental health is actually real. It is, it's so real. The numbers there. Is this is this something you can relate to, Toph? Because you've you've had your own when we talked to you last year on the show, and I'll put a link in the show notes to last year's show, which is a cracker. You've had your own challenges. And I know like going into this season, you're kind of going through some, as you call them, pivots, or you're sort of taking stock of your own world. Do you think quite often sometimes on the outside we think people are going really well? But behind the veneer, things aren't so great. Like, how? What, what's your view on that? Oh yeah, I, I believe so. Um, I think with what social media is, because social media is essentially just an extension of who we are, and it's it's really easy to post the good stuff about yourself, um, but not everything is good. Not always everything is good. And and you don't want it to be as well because if you're always good, then you can't – then you're suppressing too much emotion so that if any mates want to talk to you about something, you don't know what that feels like or you're not as compassionate or empathetic because you, you're kind of blocking everything off. Um, I know exactly what that feels like. Um, with, and it, it's something that I'm trying to with, – with when I post anything on social media, I'm always happy to post the journey and – the good stuff, but always I think it's never like everyone knows like that is going on any sort of journey. It's never a straight line. You're going to come through ups and downs. So I think that the more you can even show that side, it's it's making it really human and really real and realistic as well. Because not everything, like every every one of the people that we look up to have have come from some sort of pain. Whether we're talking like a, a fictitious character from a superhero, from something from Marvel, or someone we look up to, that could be, it could be a celebrity or like an athlete of some sort. And I think it's it's okay to to actually show that side of you to make it really relatable to those that are actually maybe going through something as well. So in season four or five, we spoke to Maria Gromberg, who is a mountain climber who summited Everest. And I heard a great quote the other day saying that nobody posts photos from the top of Everest with what you can see. People and stories are all about the journey to get up. And especially in Maria's own views is getting back down again. 
And you've been on that journey and you're still on that journey. Tell me how, how it is for you. Like, are you finding it, are you getting frustrated by the, 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 this, this image that everything's glossy on the outside, but then people aren't appreciating how the journey can be? Where are you on that spectrum? Yeah, um, I think it can, relate, it can lead to a superficiality. Like that's what it, it that's what it, um, it kind of can perceive. And I'm, I used, like, I can speak on behalf of my own experiences where I used to, that was me. And that was entirely just ego. Um, just driving, just driving the entire vehicle. Right. And I've seen it with a lot of people where it's, then the smile becomes disingenuous. In, in what are they doing? And it's just doing it because of validation of others, not validation. And, it, and it's, it's lacking um, an area of validation for themselves, which is like self-worth. And that's what I feel it needs to come to. Like sometimes, like I'll, I'll admit like the last couple of months, I haven't been as active on social media because I had a few triggers and I know with a specific trigger, I can just procrastinate in social media. I like any sort of content I put out. I, it's obviously for brand building and just to continue posting about the journey. But I had to jump off for a bit because I would, I would beat myself up and put myself through comparison and envy. And I was like, you know, I, to, to be aware of it, I would just kind of like, just, it's okay to just jump off for a bit. Um, and f- for me, I, I've, it's, yeah, it's this constant ever journey of finding more about myself. And even in those times, it's, I really need to focus on that self-love and that self-concept of like keeping myself together. So when things are failing, at least I, I, I can keep myself together during those times. And it comes, it, I feel it comes from a validation point, but it needs to come from a self-validation point before I can get from validation from, like, validation from others doesn't even really matter. You know, it's interesting. Um, I like your view on this. There was an article written in the Australian, an Australian newspaper some weeks back, and it said that research has shown that 56% of Sydney ciders are lonely. And Sydney was the highest in Australia, a couple of other capital cities were pretty much hovering around 48 to 52%. And it's been said that a lot of digital nomads uh, are lonely, which is why we work as a, as a business now, a, a collaborative, connected work environment has been so successful and grown to over $20 billion in less than 10 years because it gives you it gives you a place to hang out with other people, even though you are a digital nomad. And I know that you said to me that you, you're kind of in the same same boat in a way where you kind of miss having people around. Tell me, tell me your, how your take on that, Tove. How, how are you personally finding that? Do you think you would fit into that stat? Um, and do you think that loneliness part is playing a part? Do you think that that loneliness idea is playing a part in people's sort of unease with work, with unease with life right now? There's many parts to that question. Um, do I relate to it? <laughs> 100%, let's say 150%. Um, it sounds great, right? Like 
and it, it is. Um, but when you when you're building something on your own, or when you're kind of really bootstrapping, it it is part of that process. It can be very lonely, and I I had so much resent for my last job just because of the way the boss was treating everyone that. I, I said, you know, I'm not going to work for anyone anymore. And that's that put a lot of limiting beliefs on I cannot work for anyone anymore, right? And it, it became a double-edged sword. It's, it's, but I, humans are wired for connection. It, it totally is. And look, you can have those virtual connections, but being physically around people is, is so much better. I, like I work better than being in an office and being at home and it's, it's so fascinating what you find out about yourself in like the real dark times and like loneliness is a silent killer. And that that's, that's something I've noticed with, um, with, with depression, it can put you in this dark spiral. Um, there's also, I, I've noticed that loneliness, if I ever feel lonely, it's because I've cho- like, I've perked, like subconsciously done it to myself, right? It's like, I want to hang out with friends, but I don't want to see them because I don't want them to see me at this point in my life. But, and then I'm like, damn, I feel lonely. <laughs> so it's like, you've done it to yourself. <laughs> um, but it's, I was like, I think maybe most of October, I was like that, even part of November. And it was like the last few weeks, I would catch up with, like with mates and we'll go for runs and whatever. And even yes, I was with um, a bunch of guys, great group of guys. And it really like, it really connection is the, is the word there. But there was like, there was a sense of love there. There was this, like, it was really powerful. And it's like, damn, like, why did I, why did I isolate myself? And part of it was identity. I think I mentioned to you boys before this call, um, like I, like Toph is derived from Christopher, right? So Topher, Chris Topher, and the Toph is just there because it's Australians are just lazy with sores. <laughs> and <laughs> and it's it's good branding because I'm the only Toph Evans in the world as opposed to the million Christopher Evanses. But I used to be when I was doing engineering for like seven years, I and designing, I was known as Chris the designer. And then everything shifted, like pretty dramatically and drastically, where I became Toph the designer, uh, Toph the the ultra and I'll talk the resilience dude. And even as things are shifting, it's, it's like, well, people aren't going to know me for that. What if that changes? And when I look at it, this is going to sound cliche as at the end of the day, I would just rather be known as a good person. That's trying to leave the world better when he, than when he got here. And so that doesn't matter if I fall into some marketing role or if it doesn't matter if I'm there for, uh, for a culture uh, role at a company or whatever, it, it still comes back down to me trying to be a good person and that why – the reason why I do everything is to bridge that gap of disconnect and to truly understand what that is. It's important to actually know what that's like to actually go through disconnect. It, it's, it's, it's a terrifying feeling and that's loneliness. It's the digital nomad. Um, kind of kind of the kind of lifestyle, and as long as I'm with people, it's great. But trying to build something um, on my own, it's it's tough. 
some people can do it better. I'm naturally an extrovert, so I need to be around people, and that's where I get a lot of my energy off the, that social thriving connection. Um, but that's that's my take. That's my personal take. So what um what nickname does Toph get? Is it Toffee? Oh, so many men. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, Toffee. I, I used to get called Tofu Pot all the time. Tofu. Um, <laughs> a specific friend. Um, oh, Silky Boy. Here comes old Silky. But it, it's it's actually it's actually evolved. Funnily enough, because um, it used to just be Tofa, like, but it was spelled like T O F A. And then that's kind of shifted. And then I was like, oh, Tofu is just one syllable. It's easy. And um, I feel like Chris Evans, nothing against anyone else that has that name. But for me, it was like lacking adventure and it, it lacked. And it's like everyone else has that name. Like Captain America has that name. And not everyone, but a lot of people have this name. And I feel like Tofu has its own identity and it has it's, it has a cool story tied in with it. It is interesting you mention identity tof, tofu because we um over the last <laughs> what would be robo 6 8 months silky silky we've had this thread not by not intentionally but a thread has certainly been running through the show since we had a sports psychologist called Dr Simon Marshall on the show uh, from Braveheart coaching and he talked a lot and had written about identity and it's come up every couple of weeks it comes up and where I want to go with this is we had a guy on the line in October season five last season, and his name was Jason Redmond. Now, he'd been shot in the face in Afghanistan and left in the middle of a firefight in a really bad way, and he said, I remember looking up at the stars and thinking, this is it. Then when he came through the surgeries and through his injuries, he created this identity about being the overcome guy. So how do you overcome the worst facial injuries, getting shot, blah, 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 all these numerous surgeries, stitches, and he's the overcome guy. And he said to me that there was a point where he was doing something and he found it hard, he was going to give in, and he said, wait a second, (laughs) I can't give in because I'm the overcome guy. So I've got to go through this. I've told everybody I'm the overcome guy, I've got to do it. It It must have been or it must be a struggle because when we met you in season five, you were, you, you were the self-proclaimed, I'm your grit guy, I'm your resilience guy, I'm Toph, the resilience guy. When you go through your own personal challenges as you have or you are, that must have been really hard for you to deal with that identity to work out what your other identity or the identity you feel most comfortable with. Was that a real struggle? Yeah, um, straight up, because it was my branding. Like, that was my brand entirely, but resilience, like, my framework was built around that. But if you, if you look up what the definition of resilience is, it there's two that comes. To, I remember seeing two when you go to find resilience on Google, and one is elasticity. It, it, it's, some, it's mentioning something about elasticity, and the, the, the second term is something a little bit more um, layman, and it's saying the ability to bounce back. And that's what I look at it where I, I kind of t- like, cause I was doing a lot of endurance sports and crazy challenges. Um, there, I learned my resilience through those, through those experiences and it, it can come hand in hand with mental toughness, but that's, I feel is more grit, but 
but resilience is ability to bounce back. So it doesn't matter if you fall, like how fast can you get back up? That's, that's essentially what resilience is about. Um, and I, I probably came across probably the last, since August or maybe even July. So probably the last six months have tested me in so many ways and probably insecurities that I never thought would ever come up and things that would just, when one comes up, like it seems <laughs> a few more, like, oh, Hey, we're going to we're going to show up as well. And just one after another, after another, and it's like, okay, this is really testing my resilience. And I was like, well, I practice this stuff. I better preach it too. And I, I look at it like a blessing because some of these things, insecurities, they might may have came later on in life. So some of them, like, for example, I'm, I'll be real. Like I, I realized I hadn't loved myself for probably 13 years. Um, and that's, that's a hard one because it, it comes down to people pleasing for me. I was such a big people pleaser that I would do everything for everyone else but myself. And then um, the analogy of the cup where you want the cups to be overflowing with, with that love so you can, you can kind of spread it. But if the cup is empty, then it's pointless, right? You can't give on an empty cup. And it felt like I gave the cup away. So I like, I spread myself way too thin um, at a particular time this year. And every, I, I just felt hopeless and, and helpless too. And someone, if anyone can relate, it's about people pleasing. You, it's, it's a struggle to ask and to asking is one thing, but receiving help is, is something even harder. And yeah, th- thinking about that now, it, I'm, I'm glad to go through that because I may have, I may have only come across this later on, like maybe, maybe just say three years, hypothetically, it, the repercussions would have felt even worse. Um, and it's, I'll admit like it's been probably six months since I figured that and it's still tough to do things for myself. So, um, showing up on time for something is for someone else, like just say meeting up with a friend or whatever for an early morning workout at say five 30, I'm going to be there and I'll be there on time. But if it's for myself, it's still something really hard. So the, the, the probably one of the hardest things I've had to learn to do this year is actually say no and actually say it with conviction and say it not, and not to hurt the per like going, look, I'm not here to offend you. It's just, I always take on more than what I can chew and I always have too much on my plate to spread myself thin. If I say no to this, it's just for my own well-being. It's nothing against you. Um, and that, that's been probably one of the, the hardest things I've learned. And that, that self-awareness in myself, like I'm very proud to like talk about this stuff now. Um, and to, that's all part of the resilience journey. So at first it, it, it gave me a lot of guilt and shame at one point, I'll admit, because um, I'm like, oh, I'm the resilience dude, and I tried to not be the grit guy, <laughs> but the the mental toughness was there, um, and there's definitely grit there. Um, but when I when I look at it now and dissect it, it's like, no, that's part of that process, and everything I feel happens for you, not to you. So this is probably something that was meant to be. So that next time I get hit, it's like, oh, but I just went through something way worse than that. I'm okay. Um, 
yeah, that, that's that's my take on that. I think we could uh, we could go real deep on that, mate. I think um, there's there's so much in that that you're talking about. But I got to say, it's just it's comforting to hear somebody who has been there and done that in lots of different ways, who will be straight up and authentic because I think the stuff you're talking about, we all go through it. It's just you've taken the time to analyse it and you're talking out loud with it, you're working with people through this issue and, um, mate, I reckon it's uh, it's all part of getting your mojo working is when you don't have your mojo working, how do you find it and get it back again? And you can't do it on your own. Um, and it's, you know, it's really funny that, back when I was a kid growing up, one of the worst compliments somebody could say is, mate, you love yourself. Yet what we're hearing today is that if it starts there, if you don't actually have that respect and love for your own self and self-awareness, then it ain't going to go for anybody else. And yet when we're kids growing up, it's one of those things that's sort of said in a negative way to you in terms of if you do love yourself, that's actually not a good thing. So hearing you say that, and 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 it's not just you. The psychologists, psychoanalysts, will talk about that a lot. So I think uh, I think it's great. Thank you for um, thanks for catching up, mate. Thank you for sharing and putting it out there. It's um, it's really good to hear your voice. Oh, my pleasure, lads. And no, thank you so much too from the bottom of my heart. We interrupt this program to bring you a special bulletin. <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show. Right. And okay, big show. Time to close it. Bring it home. What are we doing? Well, it's Lola's first show. I think it should be her choice for the playout song, don't you? All right, let's. Can I have a go? Go. Yeah. <clears throat> Lola, play a Clint Eastwood song. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> there, she got you. She got you. Lola, close the show. We're out. Closing down.
Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see GaryBurtWhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out VoodooSound.com.au and for the right voice, RealTimeCasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.